Hello, everyone, and welcome to Job Board Geek. I'm Jeff Dickey Chasens, the Job Board Doctor. This is the podcast about the business of connecting candidates and employers. And with me today, I have the never scruffy Stephen Rothberg of College Recruiter. He's the co-host. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm all shaved and showered and ready to go. Yeah, I was kind of hoping in a way that you would come in in a dirty shirt and unshaved just to screw up my my description of you. But once again, you know, you foiled me. So <laughs> what what is there to do? So I'm excited today. Uh, we have a great guest on uh, Lars Peters Vane of Eurojob Sites. He runs not one, not two, but many job sites that cover the entire European continent. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about that. But first, I did. I wanted to chat a little bit about something that you actually sent me. It's something that the AIM Group picked up, and it was an article about how Indeed India has just released a Hindi version of their website. So basically, it makes it accessible for those folks in India that are most comfortable speaking and reading in Hindi, or perhaps they don't even know English. Although in India, most people, uh, certainly most people in the white collar segment are very, very comfortable in English. And I thought this was kind of interesting because this is one of those markets that Indeed is actually not doing very well in. Uh, you know, we, we often tend to think of Indeed as the Borg, where it sort of comes into a market like, the, like it did in the UK and just sort of destroys everything in its path and then moves on to the next market. But that's not always the case. In fact, in India, the largest job board is Nakri, and they actually control 75% of the job board revenue. So that's they're a monster, literally. Literally, in, in their particular market. You know, I read this article, and I thought, okay, so Indeed is sort of hitting the wall. They're having trouble expanding and adding this Hindi version of their site is one way that they can try to compete in the market. It's kind of interesting because if you look at companies like Seek, they have a really different approach to moving into other markets. Instead of s- sort of slapping down, you know, Seek Brazil, they end up buying companies that are native to those markets and putting them in under the Sikh umbrella and running them, which I think in in a lot of ways is a smart way to go because it's very hard, at least in the job board industry, to have a truly global brand that works in every single market. But I don't know. That's that's my opinion. What do you think, Stephen? Well, so first of all, I love the, uh, Star, the Star Trek reference with the Borg. Uh, but, <laughs> but you do know they weren't they weren't so much into destroying as they were into assimilating. Um, right. We can Engulfing. Have, that's that's another conversation for another podcast. I found the article to be really interesting because one of the things that I'm sure we're going to talk with Lars about today is is multi-language support. And when you're operating across borders, it's one thing to be operating in, you know, across the US where virtually everybody is going to speak English as their first language or in a country like the UK or if you're in France and everybody's going to speak French. But when you start crossing international borders in most areas of the world, and I'm sure that Lars knows this all too well, probably has lost a a lot of sleep about it. I mean, heck, different areas of Belgium, you speak different languages and you you want to go into Switzerland. And I think there are four different languages there. Now, Mm -hmm. sure, lots of people are going to speak German and English or whatever. But if you're searching for a job, I sure think you're going to want to be searching for it in the language that you're the most comfortable in. And so even if your English language skills are decent. If your primary language is Hindi, you're going to want to search in Hindi. So I thought this was really smart and 
culturally sensitive of Indeed that they, rather than trying to force the Indian labor market to be a square peg to fit into their square hole, I think Indeed is realized that it's easier for them to adapt to the market than for them to force the market to adapt to them. I I think so, although I also think that your argument would have more strength if, if in fact, Indeed had come into the market with a Hindi translation Mm -hmm. on board. I think, unfortunately, a lot of companies will move into a new market and they'll only start making adjustments after they've been in the market and they realize and they realize that they don't understand the market. Better to admit you're wrong though yep. and right and, and correct course. So we could turn back the clock and say they should have, but mm-hmm. I I admire them for basically saying, hey, you know what? We can be we can do better here. And this is how we're gonna do it. Um, supporting multiple languages is very complex and it's very expensive. And especially when you're doing it at that kind of scale, you can't just have somebody in your back office converting or translating job ads on a manual basis, doing it one by one. It has to be at scale. And that's really hard. You're you're right. You're right. But so we'll be looking for multiple translations of the college recruiter site in the coming months as you move into international markets. But anyway, I think it's about time for us to welcome our guest today, Lars Petersvein. He runs the Euro Job Sites. Lars, welcome to Job Board Geek. Thank you very much. Thanks for for inviting me. Yes, yes. Well, we're we're glad that you're here. And I believe that you're speaking to us from uh, Brussels. That's correct? That's right. Yes, yes. And so I was just wondering if you could tell me, um, I, I was remarking to Stephen before you came on that you're one of the few guests that we've had that's actually running multiple job boards. And that made me sort of think, well, so how did you get into this recruiting business and then morph that into this, this, you know, this empire of multiple job boards? I mean, the beginning, you could say I'm uh, myself uh, studied in not only my native Denmark, but also in uh, France for a year. And I studied politics and economics. And then I did a master's here in Belgium uh, in uh, European politics. And that actually meant that um, I thought I would I should look for a job here. I did the internship with one of the EU institutions, as many others do when they finish their their master's degrees here. And uh, but we we were always joking at this uh, master's degree about like these all these lofty uh, theories of European integration that we should instead we should start the internal market company mm. to, to do it bottom up instead. And um, even though I did go into a kind of traditional um, career myself, I worked for um, first for a consultancy, then for an industry association in the association in the energy field, and then I ended up working for the EU institutions on also on energy, but also on like antitrust stuff. I mean, there was this frustration that we, you know, we don't have a Washington Post here in Europe's kind of uh, capital, so there weren't there wasn't a newspaper where we could just look for job ads. And this meant uh, we would look, there's like a weekly publication. It was called European Voice at that time. Now it's Politico has actually taken over that. Uh, there were a few ads at the back. There were some consultancies who had some ads. I, I, you know, I applied for my first jobs by fax, I remember. <laughs> and, I mean, although, you know, back in, in good old Denmark, we had, I think we had internet access already in the late 80s when I studied. But um you know, the, the, a lot of these websites, they were very simple at the time. So I made my own little, can I 
HTML pages with links to all these different EU organizations. And mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the people I studied would then end up working for NATO or OECD. And so we thought, okay, that's pretty interesting too. I mean, over the years, um, I, I kept thinking maybe, maybe there was some kind of an opportunity there because, you know, when I was a kid, I had my paper round and I was carrying these really heavy Sunday newspapers and there were like three sections in them, the, the jobs, the, and also, you know, houses, apartments, and cars, but you could make money on job advertising. I knew it. And um, so when I thought, you know, can, if you to create some kind of media, maybe jobs wasn't such a bad idea. And this is what we were always talking about at the kind of, uh, you know, those bars by the European Parliament on uh, Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And am I going to get my next internship when this one runs out? <laughs> and people were sort of in various dis- degrees of desperation because they were on unpaid internship too. Um, but in the end, we thought, okay, maybe uh, I thought, you know, I could maybe make this into some sort of database or something and actually, uh, you know, list the jobs, not just the links to the organizations. And uh, one of my old friends who actually was based in London, but who had been with me kind of interested in maybe going into some sort of e-government startup, Richard, he said, well, I can set up some sort of database. And uh, we so he set up the database and well, we basically we put all the jobs in in the database ourselves because uh, no one. But we came up with this um, funny name, Euro Brussels, because this was kind of what what people were referring to to this world we uh, I was in uh, as and and um, little by little we we I mean we were basically scraping ourselves by I think mm. I made a list of all the different organizations that had jobs in this field. Richard wrote a little robot that would check were there any changes. And once a week, I would check, you know, go through all the ones that had changes and see if those were jobs. And we put them on. So it was very simple kind of job sites. But little by little, we had thousands of people who subscribed to our newsletter with those jobs. And Mm. uh, I remember my girlfriend at the time, she got really annoyed at me because I ended up spending most of Sunday working on this, you know. And, And the little program we had that would send the newsletter, it would sometimes crash in the middle of the night. Uh, so at like six o'clock in the morning, I wake up and like, oh no, I had to restart it from from PE or. Um, so she basically told me, look, you you gonna you gonna do this Monday night, not Sunday night. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the newsletter came out Tuesday morning, not Monday morning, for that reason. But okay, later it was twice a week. You know, basically we we used a lot of the kind of EU jobs as um, you could say it's a little bit like a carrot because everyone wanted to work for the EU or OECD or NATO. And then little by little, we added lots of other jobs. And then we thought, okay, now we have thousands of people reading this. So we basically spammed all the different organizations here in Brussels saying, if you just send us a link to your job, we'll put it on for free. And in this way, we, we built the marketplace kind of without really knowing it. Suddenly, we had thousands of organizations uh, using us, maybe maybe only a few times per year. I mean, 10,000s of people uh, subscribing to our newsletter. And we were doing all this in, in, yeah, uh, in our spare time. And then people started sending us, uh, you know, like sending us a Word document, say, put, can you put this on? And we were like, uh, yeah, that's um, maybe we should start charging for this. And then, um, you know, in the UK, you can start a company for £100. So my dear friend uh, Richard's wife, uh, Rachel, she studied maths where he studied computer science, but she ended up working for one of the big four um, accountancy firms. So she said, I can do the, the invoicing and we'll set up the company. But so for a few years, we 
basically we had a company, one of my old friends took care of, of putting up all the ads against the percentage of, of whatever we, we got. And the prices were like 200 euros or something and 100 for NGOs. And then later a bit more. In, in that way, we kind of built a marketplace. And then after a few years of doing that, we realized, okay, we, we, we've got something that looks like a business here. So um, I started by taking a year off from my, my job. And then uh, Richard took time off from, well, he quit his job as a, an IT consultant. And in the end, we, we, well, so we realized we could, we basically, we built a freemium business model, I would say, yeah, because we were mm-hmm. offering very basic listings for the ones who didn't pay. But this would also be great for like NGOs or internships who, who have very small budgets. So it, this kind of business model lent itself really well to this, um, the area we were in. You know, little by little, this, this was not 10,000 or 20,000. It was like 40 or 50,000 people who subscribed to our newsletter. And we started, you know, once we, we, we left our jobs, we, we started selling ads, you know, education mm-hmm. ads were actually some of the first things we made money from for like masters in law and politics and but anything goes like, uh, you know, fitness clubs in Brussels or, you know, we even had ads for cars in the beginning. But little by little, we concentrated on uh, on the jobs, and we we also we followed your advice, uh, job board doctor, and and increased the prices. Uh, <laughs> very scary the first time, big increase. You know, like are they all going to stop advertising? But but no, no, they continued. So we, we 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 you know as the audience grew and the quality grew, we we could do that, and then we also really I would say the freemium model was was maybe the the secret to our success uh, mm-hmm. because we managed to still cater for everyone in the market, but give the ones who are willing to pay uh, more visibility. And, and, and that that's how we, we made it into really a business. But of course, as a good economist, you start thinking, hmm, economies of scale, can we maybe use this template to, to build some other businesses? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we kind of thought, well, maybe IT, but nah, that's kind of taken. And a lot of people wanted to work in London in all these juicy uh, city jobs. So there was e-financial careers, which was bought by Dice later, I think. Mm-hmm, right. We thought, nah, that's, that's kind of taken. So what else? And then we had all these odd um, organizations like the European Molecular Biology Laboratory who would place ads with us. And we were a bit puzzled by this because, okay, we understood they needed like HR or, or, or lawyers, but they also put sometimes, um, you know, lots of um, uh, science jobs. So we thought, okay, there, there's something missing there. There's a gap. Mm-hmm. In the market, so we um, we basically decided to make a job site for postdocs uh, because we thought if it's too much like PhDs, it will be swamped by thousands of them. But we basically told all the universities in Europe that they could put their postdocs on for free, and eventually we, we managed to build up a huge audience of people with a PhD in science. And um, yeah, I mean, as we had guessed, you know, that be a very interesting audience also for like big pharma or aerospace companies, or and we got. Of course, some of these European organizations like the European Meteorological Satellite guys, they wanted the weather guys and, and so on and so on. So that was say that was the bread and butter of our business. And then slowly we became more and more commercial. And, and then we split out an engineer site and we split out a farmer site because we could see that, that there was a specific market for those things. For the listeners who don't uh, know what the, the freemium model that, that Lars referenced a couple times. And then Lars, I'd like to get you to kind of elaborate on that strategy a little bit. But essentially, you're giving away your product or service at a basic level and not charging for it in the expectation that a percentage of those will become paying customers. It was, it's a strategy that has been used very successfully in different 
in different industries. Uh, there was a photo, there, there was a photo site that Yahoo bought years ago was, I think it was Flickr, um, that they had that where you could store your photographs online and it was free. But if you wanted to store a lot of photographs that you had to pay, um, Apple iCloud operates that way where you get a basic level of, of storage. And if you want more then you pay for it. And even if only a small percentage of those people upgrade, if it's a digital product and it really doesn't take much time for, for the, the seller of that product or service. It's a it's a really good strategy. Maybe you could talk with us, Lars, about the your freemium model because you you definitely on your ten or so job boards you 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 pretty prominently list that um, to post a job for free. It's very clear on your site that you're not saying that you will take any job from any employer and run it for free. That there is a vetting process. You know, if you're Flickr or if you're iCloud, you're going to take everyone. If you're a job board, you're going to want to have some discretion about that. But maybe you can talk about like what percentage of those freemium customers end up converting into paying and also the the problems that you've you've run into with people trying to post, you know, bogus ads. You know, I remember one of the things I read when I was reading about this like 20 years ago, there was a guy called Robert Cawthorn at the SF Chronicle or something who said ads are content. And I mean, to some degree, you could say that those free ads we took, it also populated the job site and made, but as you say, we vetted them. We were always checking, are these jobs actually in scope for this very niche job site that we're building. Because in reality, the marketing is closely related to how clearly we've, we've defined that the scope of the job site, you know, are these, are these jobs actually interesting for the people we want to reach? And, and uh, that's the way we'll find more people when they subscribe to job alerts or, or et cetera, that, that they will spread the virus. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, part of the secret, I guess, is hitting the right balance between the low the low visibility free jobs and the high visibility paid jobs or premium jobs that you can actually tempt people enough to pay for the paying version by saying, okay, you're going to be in the newsletter. You're going to be at the top of the search categories. You will be, we'll, we'll share your job on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we've got some pretty substantial groups there, 20,000 followers on Facebook on the, on, on one site. And, um, and so that has some value as well, but it's, it isn't easy. You know, it's something you could say also like an NGO, maybe posting their internships for free with a free model. But if they want to have a, a new um, uh, manager of the office, they, they might use the paying version to, you know, to get more visibility. And I think that's also part of these uh, niche job sites strength is that compared to a, a, a generalist job board, you know, even if I have a good job now and I'm not really looking for a new job, I might just say stay subscribed to a job site in my little field because I just want to keep an eye on what's, are there any interesting jobs I don't want to miss out, you know, and I might be, you know, telling my friends about it as well. And um, so in a way, we, we that's also how we keep our value by, by being, okay, not just the internships, but also you could say the universities on the science side. It's very difficult for them sometimes to get the budget to spend money on advertising the jobs. So we, we get the jobs, even if that could be a very difficult discussion. Some universities do choose to pay, some big university research centers pay, but that's also you know, we can make money from the more commercial operators. And about what about what percentage of those freemium accounts become paid accounts? Uh, that's, oh, that's very difficult to say generally also because we have so many different sites. Um, mm. But I mean, if you look at Euro Brussels, I would say that, that was the kind of first site. Huh? That in the beginning, it was like... <laughs> 
I mean, the very beginning, it was 100% free. But then, you know, after a little while, it was maybe 80% free, 20% paid. And then part of our, what we managed to do that we, we swapped that around. So it's, it's more like, uh, 70, 80% paid and, and 20, 30% free. And it's mainly the internships and, and, uh, the, and the NGOs who don't have big budgets who, who will choose that model. No, what I'm what I'm meaning is, let, let, for every hundred accounts that that where they where they sign up for the free posting uh, of those hundred accounts that sign up for a free posting, about how many of those will end up converting into paying customers? That's difficult to say because we also have a lot of people who come in directly and pay from the beginning, but it's probably like you know eighty ninety percent because uh, you you will see that some of them, even the NGOs, they say, well, let's say we're looking for a new secretary general for the. Brussels office, we want to pay because we want the visibility and we want to be top of the search categories. We want to go the, get those passive and not so active job seekers, um, latent job seekers that, that we as a niche site are, are able to get for them. And, and they're less likely to go down right at the bottom of the list than, than the, the ones who just occasionally open the newsletter. But that's also been our strategy all the time to try and see we really go for very deep niches, very narrow niches. But then that, that to some degree, we, you know, because we're doing this across Europe, it's almost impossible in some cases because, you know, the first of all, you, you talk about the language problem already. You know, some people might not really be applying for jobs in other languages than their, their own language. Increasingly, in something like research science, people probably wrote their PhD in English uh, and they're probably quite interested in this very nerdy field that they are working on. And increasingly, it's becoming like that in a lot of fields, like even things like law. You could say, I mean, I'm a data protection lawyer and I'm interested in this very particular field of cybersecurity. And ooh, that's a very interesting job in Frankfurt. Really want to move to, actually, I'm applying anyway, you know. And, and this is, I think, something that's only happening. It's probably happening a lot less in Europe than it is in the in the in the English speaking kind of North American world, but it is increasingly happening, especially for the kind of you know senior white uh, collar people. I mean, it, you could say IT and finance have been early adopters there, and 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 then and, and law used to be something very national, and now it's actually becoming you know increasingly as business gets more international and companies are more international. Well, you need people who who can deal with this stuff in different uh, places. Yeah, I, I think um, I I think you're you're right on on that in terms of the different fields, but also, uh, and we're running out of time, but I wanted to make sure I got this last question in, uh, uh, to you. One of the things that we saw, which I think is driving some of the stuff you're talking about, was the effect of the pandemic. Drove all these people, at least the 50 or 60% of the, of the, of the workforce that can, uh, to be doing remote work and remote options, and particularly in, in in the EU, I would think that would be attractive if I, I see that great job, like you said, in Frankfurt. I don't necessarily want to move to Frankfurt, but I'm a highly qualified, you know, maybe I'll stay in Brussels and, and do that job remotely. So that's the obvious effect of the pandemic. But I'm just sort of curious. I mean, what did the pandemic do to you guys? I mean, was it was it something that just came and went? Or was it something that had a big impact on your business? To a degree. I mean, if you looked at the this number of job ads here in Brussels for the for the policy site and, and the, that field, I mean, we were a little bit scared in, I think, March, April and May 2020 wasn't very pleasant. But uh, I mean, once we kind of, I think June was already better. We got through the, the, the summer it already started ticking up a bit. And we were also lucky that we had more than one 
leg to stand on. So in fact, mm. the science and pharma stuff it were, was still ticking over pretty well. And um, it's no big secret. We have a lot of um, public sector clients and they were maybe less, uh, you know, worried. They have a budget, have a number of jobs they want to place over a year. That's that's always nice. But also we have increasingly, we have some bigger customers who had just bought a big package in January or February. So, you know, cash flow wise, we were not so worried. But but I completely agree with your point that especially you could say in a place like Europe, the, the floridization of Europe hasn't maybe really happened in, to the same degree as it has in, in the in the US. Uh, so people increasingly now opening up their eyes and saying, hmm, actually, if I only need to be back here in um, cold, gray, rainy Northern Europe for <laughs> two or three days um, every month, hmm, I could I could actually rent that little, um, nice little thing with a view of the sea down in that warm part of Europe. And then I could fly back there just for those meetings, those three days. And I mean, most of the meetings today, they're on on. Like just we are right now, you know, we're sitting in three different places. Uh, I mean, personally, I think it's, I sometimes miss a little bit hanging out with the other guys, especially from the sales and marketing team. But, you know, we have to be realistic as well. You know, people get a lot of freedom. They avoid the, the commute. I mean, there are a lot of people who are quite happy with uh, not having to stay in their cold, uh, rainy, uh, northern places during the summer. So we're not not just the digital nomads, but but. A lot of people are thinking about this now. Well, listen, Lars, it's been great having you on the show. Very interesting what you guys are doing. If any of our audience wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, there's LinkedIn. You know, you look up look up my name and or just Lars at Eurojobsites.com. Thank you very much for, for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to, to meet you guys online. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we certainly have swapped emails over the years, but it's kind of fun to actually virtually meet. So, uh, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for a great plug. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Stephen, if, if people want to get in touch with you, what what should they do? Easiest way is uh, email me, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at collegerecruiter.com. And uh, for the listeners who have not had the pleasure of going to Brussels, do I've had the I've had the good fortune of being there a couple times, including last November. Um, truly, one of the world's great cities. Thank you so much, Lars. Thank you. And I guess that's about it for today's episode. If you have been enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe via Apple, Spotify, or whatever happens to appeal to your subscription needs. My name again is Jeff Dickey Chasen, the Job Board Doctor, and you've been listening to Job Board Geek. It's the only podcast that focuses on the business of connecting candidates and employers. That's it for today, and we'll see you again next time.